for many, many years, he, he adopted a test around what he called uh, like, trust and admire. If he liked, trusted and admired the chief executive of the company, and importantly, he felt he understood the business proposition, then he would invest in them. I'm Matt Rogan, and this is the Playbook Podcast, where leaders from inside and outside sport share pragmatic advice for leading and managing through change. Today, we're going to look at a very specific area, what actually makes an effective board. I'm joined for this conversation by the Ian Cumming Chair at the English Institute of Sport, John Dowson. The EIS provides support services to British Olympic, Paralympic and Commonwealth sports, enabling them to realise their potential, their athletes to achieve excellence through the science, medicine, technology and engineering. I'm a non-exec director at the EIS where I've got to know John. He's seen boards of all shapes and sizes and prior to his work in high performance sport, his career was in finance, corporate restructuring and infrastructure investment with IBM and PwC. He's worked in over 25 countries and latterly is the firm's PwC's industry leader for all the private sector, excluding financial services in the UK. In sport, prior to taking up his EIS appointment, he served for six years on the board of UK Sport as their senior independent director, chaired the Group Audit and Risk Committee. He's also a former chair of Boccia UK. Some background then, but whether you currently sit on a board or a leadership team, I hope that this provides some useful insight into what makes the top of the tree really effective in driving the today and the tomorrow in sport. This is the Playbook Podcast with Matt Rogan. So, John, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks, Matt. Listen, I thought that a sensible place to start, um, given we have listeners from around the world, but also uh, many of whom spend most of their working worlds in the commercial sports space, I, I thought uh, a sensible place to start maybe. If you could give us a bit of an introduction into um, who the EIS is and the role that it plays across performance sport in the UK. Yeah, it's a great opportunity because the EIS doesn't really have a high public profile in sport. We work in the background. Um, we kicked off back in 2002 with a focus on sports science and medicine support services into the sports in the high performance system here in the, in the UK. Um, and our role has grown since then. Um, we now have around 400 staff. We've expanded our services into performance support. We operate with um, virtually all of the Olympic and Paralympic sports and a number of the Commonwealth Games sports as well. Uh, we have people who are doing specialist work in the background as well as staff who are embedded within sports. Um, we operate also out of eight high performance centres dotted around England from Sheffield down to Bath. Um, our people about 400 people altogether, um, are operating at the leading edge of sports development. And one of our great benefits is our ability to maintain, I suppose, through our knowledge network, a really deep understanding of what the latest developments are in sport that are working, and then feed those benefits across to other sports very, very quickly. It's, um, it, it is certainly, I found it a fascinating place to be, um, be playing a role over the course of the last three, three and a half years. And, and, and yet the next three years 
in this unique Olympic, Paralympic and Commonwealth environment we find ourselves in is, is going to be particularly busy um, in, in for the EIS and for the UK sports scene overall. Um, what, what does the direction of travel look like for the next three years, do you think? I, I think we've got um, short-term challenges to surmount but we've also got to set ourselves up for the long term because one thing to bear in mind is that the sporting landscape is evolving very very quickly before our eyes and UK sport which is our main funder has a 10-year horizon to look at so although we will concentrate on the next three years we'll be looking out beyond that as well but over the next three years just think we've just come out of the Tokyo Olympic Games which were incredibly successful Next week, we start on the Paralympic Games, which is close to my heart. We've got the Beijing Winter Olympics coming up earlier in the new year. And then we've got Birmingham Commonwealth Games coming up next summer. So it's just uh, one massive uh, challenge after another. And our people are both um, exhausted on the one hand and really charged up with enthusiasm about the next challenges ahead in these, these short-term games. But on top of that... Just think about what's been happening with Tokyo. We've we've introduced a number of new sports and disciplines, BMX on the back of cycling, uh, skateboarding, some of the climbing competitions, the, the uh, bouldering, for example, really captured my imagination. Um, we've got a younger demographic, quite deliberately, coming through sport. We've got further longer-term developments, which none of us can fully predict. But um, who knows, for example, whether e-sports might come onto the programme in the longer term. So our people operating at the edge really need to be thinking through what's going to be changing, how, how are our competitive advantage is going to evolve over the longer term and what development path should we be creating amongst our own people in collaboration with the sports and the BOA and the BPA and Commonwealth Games England just to take this whole um, environment forward. So I think we've got a combination of short-term challenges and long-term strategic directional changes to think through. It's a fascinating board environment where one minute you can be having a dialogue around um say the, the the provision of heat chambers and the, the strategy for, for heat acclimatization for tokyo and the next you can be silently chastising yourself because you've called breaking break dancing and showing your age you know and you're getting your head around some of the the, the new sports coming around the corner as you say listeners in the in the intro will have heard that you've got a really diverse background diverse experiences of of corporate britain um, what did you learn from your time working in the corporate space around in, in any industry around what, what makes a really effective board? I think this might uh, prove to be a long answer, Matt. So um, chop me up and, uh, and we can split it off into parts. But um, it's such a complex area. And I, I think certainly in all of my experience through the 1990s in particular and then leading on from there, we had massive corporate crises, um, not only in the UK, but abroad as well. We had the Maxwell failure, BCCI, Enron, Tyco, Bearings, a number of massive failures, which all pointed the finger at poor governance processes within the boards of those companies. And um, and I start off from there. Um, I think stepping back, you need to think about what is the, the main role of the board. And, and there are two flip sides of coins, which I have in my mind, which have got some good academic research behind them. Um, One of the coins is part of the time leading, for instance, on strategy, and part of the time advising on on areas which the company might need to go into. 
And the second coin is, again, with the flip side of challenge, challenge of management. And then the flip side of that is supporting them, particularly when things are going wrong. So lead, advise, challenge, and support key roles of the board. In, in doing that, I think board members need to take an interest in what the company is doing. Um, they need to understand the enterprise, where it is now and where it's going. And they need to build a good relationship with the executive management, but not themselves become part of executive management because their role is independent. Um, within the board, I think there need to be complementary skills. There need to be some skills which are relevant to the current enterprise, but also some skills which might be relevant to the direction it's taking, which could be out of its comfort zone. There need to be uh, really important elements of diversity. Uh, and I, I think this goes beyond the, uh, the balance of discussion around diversity, which has taken place in the last few years on gender, and then much more recently on ethnicity. Um, I was quite taken with a book by Matthew Said, who I think you know, Matt, on rebel ideas, which is all about cognitive diversity. And this is one of the fundamental features, I think, of a very healthy board, that you've got this cognitive diversity, which is um, thoughts and ideas and experiences from very, very different backgrounds and age groups. And then in terms of behaviours, I think um, boards need to be prepared to, to listen and to be mutually challenging as well as supportive. Um, they need to be learning because the ground never stands still. So a good board spends some of its time on its own learning path. Um, and then on size, there's, there's some really good academic research that says a good size for a board is 12. And, and the reason for it being so big is because you want board members to take part in some of the committee activity. And so you need a spread of board members to split the, the roles. But having said that, in all of my experience also, the best size for a discussion group in any challenging area is six to eight. So there's, there's a big challenge for a board in managing those two uh, separate areas. And, and I do think maybe that's that's an area that can be overlooked um, when the discussions around effectiveness, effective boards um, take place because the perception might be um, actually everything happens in that group of 12 to 14, whatever it might be. But if I think about our involvement for the EIS in the remuneration committee, for example, or your experience leading um, audit and risk for the UK sport board, you know, they're pivotal parts of the whole infrastructure, which uh, if they're doing their job well, actually ease the responsibility for the board then to go into detail in any of those critical areas. There's one other factor which comes out of all of this, which um, I think is around behaviours and expectations amongst your colleagues. Um, and there was a really seminal piece of work done for the Harvard Business Review back in the early noughties, uh, leading to an article by Jeffrey Sonnenfeld on what makes a good board operate. And um, he went beyond all of the work that had been done before on corporate, corporate governance processes, which everybody's aware of these days. Um, and and he, he nailed it down into behaviours. And he felt that the key attributes of a, a really effective board were around um, mutual respect, candour and trust. And, and he did research against what caused corporate failures and where boards had fallen down before. And in most of those cases, the governance structures were in place, scarily. But, but what was missing was a key aspect of respect, candor, or trust amongst the board members. 
And, uh, and I've thought about that over the years, and I've, I've seen that with my former clients and then in boards that I've participated in and, and led. And I think it's a really profound uh, statement which, which people should think about and try and embed in the way that they operate, building this mutual respect, candor, and trust amongst the board members. And that requires, that requires mutual commitment from the board, right? Because, you know, if, if you look at um, the majority of board roles, at least insofar as... as um, in British sport, um, they might require a you know a, a one day a month or two days a quarter or whatever it might be in terms of commitment, and um, those three attributes aren't necessarily something you're going to gather in that short amount of time unless you're prepared to put a little bit of incremental time and, and emotional investment in. Yes, and, and that's a really important point. So when I was talking earlier on about um, trying to built some learning aspects into the board environment. I think part of the benefit of that learning is it gets people working together um, on, on a common objective. And if you have, whether it's subtle or, or overt, this um, aim to build respect, candor, and trust amongst the members, then it's really, really powerful. And, and that should also spread then into the board's relationship with the executive management team, which really requires the same attributes. And if there were one thing I'd pick out for my... EIS board role it's the quality of that interaction actually that that I think really makes it makes it stand out makes it particularly rewarding to play a role in um before we get into the the boards in sport specifically though I'm just interested in given you've worked um around the world so prodigiously are there any real differences in how boards operate that you might see around the world because we have listeners to the the pod from right the way around the world what do you notice is different well, uh, in, in some areas, there are different governance rules. So, re- for example, if you go to Germany, there'll be uh, supervisory boards built into governance structures as well as the executive board. Um, there'll be a mandate, for example, for employee participation. And, uh, and we can learn from that within the sports sector, I think, just in terms of whether we should be having athletes represented directly on boards. Uh, and some of the sports have already gone in that direction. Um, There is a trend line now appearing, uh, and it's around the world, and it's partly driven by the investor community, but but partly by uh, other pressures, and that is to to change the motivation of boards to act solely on the um, shareholder interest and build in much more social responsibility and and a much more direct um, requirement to operate for the benefit of not only employees but also customers and society um, and I think that's a trend line which has developed in other countries as well and uh, and we will need to be mindful of that as we go forward in our sector. In particular the front and centre of performance sports strategy in, in our country of course for the new strategy is um, Catherine Granger and Sally Monday and the whole UK sport team talk very eloquently about sort of a consciousness around social impact of all the work that, that, that goes on in the performance sports sector, um, which, which maybe takes us into um, the, the sports space. Um, when you first step foot in the sports space, um, having had a corporate background, you know, what, do you, what did you notice is, is different, not necessarily better or worse, but different in terms of the way in which governance and board structures work in, in, in our sector compared to others you'd seen? The sports sector is so diverse um, in, in, in the way it operates and also in its scale of the individual components. 
And it's also very complicated because any individual entity within the sports sector is interacting with many other different types of entity across their government structures, whether it's their funding body, whether it's their membership organizations, clubs, and so on. Um, the the bodies that I've become very closely involved in have been um, at the elite end of sport, um, fielding athletes in the Olympics and Paralympic Games. And, and so I've been involved in boards governing that aspect, but also then interacting with the, the bodies which um, interact with clubs directly on the ground or, or national participation. But even within the elite sector, there's a massive um, spread of scale of the organizations involved. And I was lucky um, to get involved, first of all, in a very, very small organization. And I'll tell you what that taught me. Uh, it, it taught me that not only does the small organization have to comply with all of the government's requirements that are out there, but the people involved in it, who are largely volunteers, have to pick up so many different jobs, including the board members, because there's nobody else to do the work. So uh, you end up volunteering for, say, 10 to 12 days a year worth of activity and you end up spending at least two days a week um, and enjoying it because um, it's so fascinating. Um, it's also challenging and if you if you take, I don't know, take a, a sport like skateboarding, which is arguably not a sport for many of its participants, it's more a way of life, um, but, but in its participation in the uh, Olympics, it also needed to conform to certain governance requirements for its funding. And, and so it's found a way to navigate between the two elements of its uh, philosophies. Uh, brilliantly so indeed. But, uh, but yeah, I, I just find that there's such a spectrum uh, of activity. On the, the bigger scale boards in sport, then they operate like um, any well-run company you would hope to see. But, but everybody has been stimulated into improvement by the Code for Sports Governance, which was first launched about four years ago and is being updated at the moment. And that's been a huge benefit, I think. I, I guess the, um, the slight challenge that I notice for smaller organisations is, as you say, you know, the time requirements on the board often to pick up sort of executive roles can be quite significant. And that in turn means um, that the pool that they can look to to source board directors is actually quite narrow because they have to find people who can afford to give that amount of pro bono time, which in turn means they don't tend to be, um, they don't tend to be as diverse as they might be. Um, because people have got to earn a living and, and that tends to mean working five days a week. So it's a, that can be a difficult area, I think. You're absolutely right. And, and so I found in my experience, and if you look around the boards of the national governing bodies, you'll see a similar sort of trend. There's the sort of older age group person who might have semi-retired, gone into non-executive director activity and wants to put some time in. Um, you've got people who are running their own consulting operations, for example, who are prepared to put part of their time into free support work for their organizations. Um, and you've got people coming out of, say, the athlete community who are maybe transitioning or thinking about transitioning and, and picking this up as an area of experience to develop further. Um, so th there is still a spread, but you're absolutely right. It does restrict part of the demographics that you really want to go for. Having said that, I have found um, another area of input which is incredibly valuable, and that is there are major companies and major firms of professional accountants or lawyers out there who, as part of their corporate social 
responsibility budgets wish to put some time back in. And um, so, for example, in, in Botcher UK, we had some fantastic input from one of the leading law firms who helped us out in a, any number of areas free of charge. So, so maybe where, where we could take this conversation now, John, you, you, you hinted there at that sort of, um, you know, the nuances between being a genuinely non-executive, either a non-executive director or even a non-executive chair, and then being pulled into the executive side. So if we look at the chair role specifically, um, all chairs aren't made equal, are they? So you can be have an executive chair and a non-executive chair. For the uninitiated, what's the difference between those? Uh, and which one are you? Um, w- which one am I? First of all, I, I'm, I'm very definitely a non-executive chair, and and have been in the other roles I've performed elsewhere, and I strongly believe that that's the right place to be, certainly for our sector. Um, there is a case in some areas for there to be an executive chair, but if you think first of all about what, what's the principle here, the the chair role is mostly outward facing and also holding management to account. Um, If they move into an executive role, that implies that they're going more inwardly focused and they're usurping part of the activity of the chief executive. And and that creates needless areas of ambiguity and conflict. So the case for being an executive chair is if that, for example, investor relations or external stakeholder relations role is so massive that for, for the benefit of the enterprise, the exec needs to be spending a lot of time on it, then they, they should go executive and, and have that very clearly delineated in their job description. But otherwise, I'm strongly of the belief that the chair role is non-exec and, and should focus in on the independence attached to holding management to account, managing the board and managing some of the external activity. I would echo that. Um, but I would echo that actually having been a executive chair. So in my time, two circles. Um, but the context there was exactly as you describe it. So um fast growth business but still a pinprick relative to the size of wpp as a whole with hundreds of other stakeholder companies internally and a whole world trying out there while we were trying to grow on on three continents simultaneously uh, and managing it but only because gareth and i were very clear around individual responsibilities um and in some ways in order to be effective when i then came into uh, management team, leadership team meetings that Gareth was leading, I almost found myself playing a kind of a troubleshooty, um, challenge and support non-exec type role just to firmly delineate the difference between Gareth and I. And, and hopefully that worked for, for the period of sort of three, four years we did it. And that, I, I guess, then takes us on to the criticality um, of the relationship between the chair um, let's take a non-executive chair and, and, the, and the chief executive um, what, what have you learned in that regard, having seen, you know, being in that position with Botcher yourself, but also seen the interplay at, at various corporate organisations as well? And, and I've, I've seen it go horribly wrong in corporate uh, organisations I've worked with as well. So, um, and there are lots of examples in current affairs of where chair, chief executive relations break down and, and one probably has to go. Um, it's a really critical pairing. Um, there needs to be a recognition of the division of responsibility. And I think the chair needs to re- respect the chief executive's role in leading the executive team, senior leadership and, and out into the business, as much as the chief executive needs to respect the chair's role in, in leading and managing the board and, and value the scrutiny and challenge as well as the support that comes through that. Um, where they 
um, really need to work together is where things are going wrong, for example, uh, with the business or, or where the, sh- the future is being shaped. And they work very, very closely together on shaping board agendas, clearly, um, and, and in thinking through the response to risk that is coming along. The board has a huge role to play in risk management, but then the chief executive and the management team need to be um, preparing the ground and responding to various risk scenarios. So I think the personal relationship between the two is really important. And one of the things I've learned over the years is it's a bit of an overlay with what I was saying about um, Jeffrey Sonnenfeld earlier on. Um, Warren Buffett had an interesting test in his organization in Barclay Hathaway for how he would invest in chief executives in the companies he invested in. And um, for many, many years, he, he adopted a test around what he called uh, like, trust, and admire. If he liked, trusted, and admired the chief executive of the company, and importantly, he felt he understood the business proposition, then he would invest in them. But if they failed on any of those four areas, then he wouldn't. And I found that a very useful test in, um, in the people I've really enjoyed working for. And I've hoped to create that kind of environment in the people who work directly to me. And if you think about the Jeffrey Sonnenfeld test, which was respect, candor, and trust, it's a very similar sort of thing. Not dissimilar, is it? It's not dissimilar, but the added element is, uh, is like. Um, and I think that's quite important at a human level. So these relationships are very, very important. And look, we're in a we're in a situation now we should talk about, aren't we? Because um, the national director um, of the EIS, so the leader of the the EIS, Nigel Walker, um, is sadly leaving us um, after eleven years in that that leadership role as the yin to your yang. And, and I guess. To the only role he would have he would have left us for at the WRU, having been capped internationally for Wales, um, and so we're now in a position where you're leading our our search to find somebody else that we like, trusted, admire to to do that role. Um, what do you think the the traits are of a of a beyond being able to inspire those feelings in the board? What do you think the traits are of a of a high performing CEO in our kind of space? The, it's a really good question, that, Matt, and we've thought, as you can imagine, long and hard of, about this over the last few weeks. And it's not necessarily that we're wanting a clone of Nigel. Nigel has grown in the job. I think he'd be first to say that. He's been incredibly successful over 11 years. Um, the organization has developed, um, led by him and the board, uh, and our um, coverage and, and tentacles across sport are much, much broader now than they were when he first took on the job. Um, the CEO is in quite a pivotal position here and not only are they dealing with 40 odd sports at chief executive and performance director level but they're dealing with our major partners the BOA and the BPA at the moment we had over 80 people in Tokyo for the Olympics for example Um, they're dealing with Commonwealth Games England they're dealing with um, UK sport importantly as our major investor Um, They're dealing with uh, some of our business partners out there. We work in close collaboration with universities on on the latest edge uh, developments and research. We work with the medical profession. For example, we've got 20 doctors working for us, and we work on sports medicine developments out there in the the, uh, broader world. Um, We're also working with major companies on innovation. 
whether it's in material science or technology, to help our sports develop their next wave of competitive advantage. So the, the stakeholder interaction is massive. And we also have um, a very highly motivated workforce of 400 or so people with one of the highest employee satisfaction and motivation scores I have to say I've ever seen in, in the last 30 years of my experience. It's massive. Um, so they come in with um, not only a fantastic platform, but a challenge to maintain some of the successes we've delivered. And, and therefore, they don't need to be per se, an expert in sports performance management, they need to be, in my view, a highly competent CEO who understands the broader tactical management challenges and stakeholder challenges. Now, beyond that, I mentioned earlier on, we've got these massive challenges in the next three years of of big games to come and some developments around the edges of the services we provide. But we also need to set up a platform which can develop for us and for the success of the UK sporting system over the next 10 years. And so there's quite a big strategic piece of work to do with UK sport and our sporting partners to to develop that next wave. So I'm looking for somebody who is um, very competent at uh, strategy and change as well as stakeholder management and, and staff motivation. Quite Quite a big task. Quite a big task, but a, but a fascinating task for somebody um, who feels that they might be looking to stretch their current experience into into something that's, that's perhaps one step, but not too many steps from removed from where they are today. You know, and, and I would underline that that natural ability to morph from uh, current and future, often, you know, often within a, and external and internal dialogue so internal dialogue across intrinsically highly motivated team as you say and external to all our stakeholders uh, and then current of managing to you know ever winter olympics really and paralympics really not very far away um with a a 10-year planning horizon which is increasingly how british performance sport is trying to see things so um being agile and in that regard i think is is going to be key and, and an understanding of high performance in its widest context. I think um, those of us, you included, who've um, got a background in a high-performing environment with very demanding stakeholders will understand what that means. Now, Nigel Walker came in with the added advantage of having been an international athlete, an Olympian in his own right, as well as an international rugby player. I mean, what a fantastic pedigree. So he understood high-performance sport directly, and, and somebody with that that background would be very interesting. But high performance in its broadest sense is also relevant to this role. It's very nicely framed. I mean, I guess I, um, I, I've i never stepped on a elite level sports pitch, much to my disappointment. The closest I've ever got was racing in the same London marathon as Paula Radcliffe, but clearly that doesn't count. Um, but there are hundreds of ways you can develop that empathy for, for what elite Olympic and Paralympic and Commonwealth athletes are going through. I wanted to ask a, a final question, perhaps, around realism in this environment. So as you touched on um, in your experience of, of Boccia and even in, in our current environment, you know, we are, you know, we're a sizable organisation from a sports perspective, but uh, probably one regional office, if you look at it in the context of, a, of corporate Britain. So, so, so should, whilst of course sport aspires to, to the very best, you know, are there some areas where you think, honestly, we should cut ourselves a bit of slack? Uh, in terms of the government's expectations we have of ourselves? Oh, that's a really good question. 
Um, my inclination is to say no. Um, I don't think we should cut ourselves slack. The I tell you, the fascination I have with a high-performing sports system is it's very similar to the corporate world that I knew before. Um, the average age profile of the employees is young. Um, they are highly motivated. They are technically competent. They're, they're desperately willing to learn and innovate. They love collaboration. And, and they love collaborating with people who have complementary skill sets. And against that background, they also recognize that we've got this massive challenge every time there's a games to show the benefits of the work that's been put in, in, in performance outcomes. And um, if we slackened off from that environment, I think we'd lose out. The, the, the added benefit that the EIS in particular brings is this enormous potential of scope and scale economies together with knowledge networking, which, which should continue to enable the UK to accelerate its development path, hopefully in most cases ahead of the game in, in many other countries, and so keep our edge in the games environment. And um, so I think, if anything, we should be challenging ourselves more and more intellectually to work out where can we find that new area of competitive advantage. And, and that's one of the things that really interests me about this whole environment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I must have had, admit to when everyone was, was starting to ride around their bikes on the track cycling circuit and sort of taking a look at ours that I'd, I'd seen some images of in a board meeting, but also sort of noticing that the other team's bikes and you just, you can't beat that frisson of having been just a small part of a small part of, of what's happening out there at the same time. Um, in terms of the, the slack piece I, and whether we should cut ourselves some slack or, you know, I, I'm inclined to agree with you that, that we shouldn't either. You know, if you have over the the 30 plus sports that we support, you know, if one of those sports doesn't have as good a games as they might suggest, then um, the funding that's gone in versus the, the medals that have come out makes the 10 o'clock news. And so, you know, the hard reality is the decisions that have been made in the very best intentions for every sport is, is you know, requires completely open um, dialogue. And, you know, you have to see how decisions have been made with the best interests. And also we have a 400 strong workforce, as you say, sadly, far younger than you and I on average, who who expects decisions to be made in, in open form and expect to be able to have a view on, on, on those as well. And so um, whilst it might be challenging, um, I, I think we absolutely need to continue with the same frame of reference and standards that, that we hold ourselves to, if not improving them. And I think there's something else that we can add as well, which I know UK sport is, is all over and the government's keen on, and that is how can we work more together across the entire sporting system for the benefit of society? We've seen such, um, such amazing things happen during the COVID crisis. We should be building on those and, and working more to, to work out you know, how additional benefits can accrue. Absolutely. So um, to finish off with then, let's, let's chat quickly about the future. So is there anything else that we haven't touched on in terms of the way you see boards in sport, whether commercial or, or performance sport, might change in the future or evolve in the future? Yeah, I, I think um, the Code for Sports Governance has gone a long way to help with enabling boards to focus on where they're adding value and where they're doing the right thing. Um, and that needs to continue. There are some practical things which need to be done around um, improving the diversity on the boards themselves. And one of the 
fairly straightforward things that can be done around that is thinking about the uh, the cycle of renewal within the board. Um, boards tend to be lumpy institutions. They've grown over the years with, in some cases, very long service among some board members, and there have been some new members joining over the last two or three years. But if you think of, um, say, a board size of 12 people, and board terms are three lots of three years or two lots of four years, it should be feasible over time to get into a cycle where every couple of years or so you're going through uh, a renewal of, of some of the board members. And that in itself would be beneficial just to improve the newness of thinking that's coming through on board. So I, I think a focus on how that renewal path is developing would be of great benefit, along with the diversity strategy, which needs to cover off ethnicity, gender, age, um, skills and background, uh, a number of different dimensions, which can be tailored with relevance to what the individual sport is. The other area of development, I think, is uh, around this longer-term development path for individual sports. How does the sport itself make itself more relevant to the general population and to participation? How does it make itself relevant to improving the societal impact of sport? And so even at the elite sport level where there's a high degree of focus, it's worth thinking about what can be done to improve its scope of activity in collaboration with the participation bodies to improve impact on society. And that might well lend itself then to extending some of the services, extending the use of technology, extending communications, extending some of the commercial sources of revenue, and those in themselves then demand new skills at board level as well as amongst the management groups. And that in itself is a, well, having written a book about that kind of space, it's an 85,000 word <laughs> um, challenge. And that's just to get started in terms of, of making those those links work, but it has to happen. Um, and, and indeed, I, I agree with you, will happen. And, and to the to the first point you made on, to the broader diversity and shape and structure boards. I know we've got some plans from a EIS perspective in the in the six to twelve months to follow. If, if people are interested, to keep an eye out for some of the, the roles we'll be looking for. Um, but to start with the role we're, we're looking for today, um, how if people have an interest in learning more about our, our CEO, so the, the Nigel role. Um, if you like, um, as was. Um, how do they find out a little bit more about about the role and, and how to apply? So the, the role itself is now uh, advertised openly with a recruitment pack, which is um, quite extensive. Uh, you can find that on the UK Sport website or the EIS website, which is eis2win.co.uk. Um, you can also email me on john.dowson at eis2win.co.uk and uh, we'd be delighted to hear from you. Very good. Well, listen, that, that sounds a very seamless ending, but I'm afraid I can't let you off with it. Um, if we go back to the, the premise of this conversation, which was how boards operate most effectively and, and how we make the most of, uh, of boards in a, in a sporting environment, um, can I ask you to sum up the main message that you would have for all of us either aspiring to join one or are currently in a board as to how they make it as effective as it possibly can be? But you have to do that in 10 words or less. That's a real challenge. Um, I think it's get involved, but I would go beyond it, Matt, and I'd say um, 
help people generally to get involved further in sport, whether it's participation, volunteering, coaching, management or governance. If you're already involved, please get involved in governance. It's intensely rewarding in a non-financial sense. Um, It's a fascinating world to be in. Uh, I love it and I know you do and I'd love to see more people getting involved. It's been um, it's been a complete highlight for me of the last three years. Despite everything that's that's happened at Two Circles, it's been a complete highlight of me to be involved with EIS. And so, um, thank you to my new non-executive chair, John, for taking time. And uh, look out for more from us in the next few weeks and months. Thanks, Matt. It's been great to be involved. The Playbook Podcast is published by SportsPro and is part of a wider series delivering agenda-free, pragmatic advice on how to navigate your organisation through change. To explore the library and find out about the Playbook Lab's residential executive training programme, head to sportspromedia.com slash playbook.